Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up on the show later tonight, it is our review, our recap, Sundance 2023 Redux with the Radioactive team. We've got Gavin Dahl, Eric P. Nelson, Rashawn Leak, and Autumn Thatcher joining me later in the program for their hits. I think we pretty much stayed away from misses, to tell you the truth. Lots to pack into the show, but we're going to start right away with rallies and resources. Coming up tomorrow at noon on the steps of the Capitol, they're hoping to move it inside because it's been so cold and will be tomorrow. It is the Utah Indian Child Welfare Act press conference. This is the state version of the federal law and currently in peril, organizers of the press conference say, as the bill, HB 40, has been held in the House Judiciary Committee, stopping the bill from being heard on the House floor. Now, what this bill would do, it would ensure that when a Native child is placed in the foster care system, they are returned to next of kin or tribal relatives to preserve their cultural heritage. And it's got bipartisan support, including the lieutenant governor and the attorney general. To find out more, let's pass that microphone. My name is Nathaniel Brown. I am from the Navajo Nation. I'm currently an employee for the Navajo Nation President Boo Nigren and Vice President Rochelle Montoya. So, An historic election. Yes, yeah, so in the Navajo Nation, we elected a nine... Uh, female council delegates. So in this 24-body legislatures, nine is almost half. And then within the council, um, last week on Monday evening, uh, the council elected their first ever female speaker of the council as well. And then um, with the Navajo Nation um, president and vice president, the very first ever uh, female vice president, Rochelle Montoya. So it's History is being made all over around us. Some history potentially being unmade as a federal case about ICWA and its constitutionality. And Utah trying to pass a Utah version of ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978, Mm -hmm. which protected uh, indigenous children within the adoptive and foster care system. And I'm kind of curious, you're up here with other folks Um, lobbying Utah lawmakers to pass this, and it's been held in committee. We're not sure exactly why that hasn't been communicated. But do you have any insight that you'd like to share about why this is happening or why it should be passed? I'm not sure why the Utah leadership is holding it in the Judiciary Committee, but we... Um, I, I, we will have um, the eight tribes will be here tomorrow at the press conference. So a lot of the tribal representative, including our president um, and first lady, will be in attendance as well tomorrow afternoon. So I'm really happy that a lot of people are aware. And, and well, the one question that um, one of the Utah leaderships um, asked was, I want to know what indigenous tribes think kind of like we have to answer for why and and educating them. Um, We have been educating Utah leadership as well as Mr. Uh, Attorney General Sean Reyes. So he's been on board. Um, Madam uh, Lieutenant Governor Henderson is very well aware, our lobbyists. We have resolutions that we submitted over and over again. So um, we'll continue to educate and and share why, and especially from the very people that this will impact as well, our children. So let's talk about ICWA, broadly speaking, and what it does and has done since 1978. Indian children, they have unique political status, not afforded other kids as members of sovereign tribal governments. ICWA, as um, passed and validated in 1978, makes this quite clear that it doesn't Uh, violate the 14th Amendment Clause, which is the challenge uh, happening at the federal level right now. And the recognition that this is a nation-to-nation relationship, and therefore the tribes have a vested interest in what happens to their people. You know, I I, I keep going back to I'm I'm not really sure why they don't um um the leadership here does not understand and also certainly other states have also passed similar at the state level also 
So um, hearing from, from our own people why their requests and people who've been impacted. You know, myself, when I was a legislature on the Navajo Nation, I had a family um, from Navajo Mountain, um, Utah, who contacted me with their four grandchildren. And the, in the state of Maine, um, unfortunately, biological mom passed away, father, non-native, but um, struggled with alcohol, drugs, and um, we, ICWA was successful in, in, in really bringing the children back to um, the grandmother. And just instances like this really does help our children, that connection. And, you know, unfortunately, in this case, the oldest granddaughter, she did have um, uh, a sickness and she only got to spend less than two weeks with her grandmother. Um, it would have been longer if, if, if the courts um, expedited the process. So just situations like this and, and where it helps and bringing um, our children home where, um, you know, our families are. And ICWA, again, 1978, was part of recognizing the harm, the intergenerational harm done through the Indian uh, school removal and all of that and that is still part of the trauma that tribal nations are dealing with and reckoning, asking us, non-tribal folks, to recognize. Do you feel that there's a, I don't know if it's willful, but an ignorance of this history? Definitely. The, there is a, a willful ignorance. Um, it's a choice that some of the leaderships are taking on. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, how else can we tell them? We, we put it in writing. We have videos. We have stories. We have people uh, multi working with multiple tribes. None of the tribes that I know of um, opposes this. So if you have 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States requesting the same, you know, that that's a very powerful message to leadership, not just in the state of Utah, but throughout the whole United States and, and beyond. So keeping our children, I mean, I can't imagine if if, with, if this was not a Native American, what about protection of non-Natives? What if this was reverse? You know, how, how would the leadership um, protecting their kids, how would that look like? You know, if we as Native Americans were speaking for their children and making very important decisions for them, you know, if we're taking some of the basic um, rights to to um, having that accessibility, giving the children back to to indigenous families. So, you know, it's 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 when you have this reverse. I think that would be a different story, right? Yeah. Immediately. Well, I'm thinking right immediately of the situation, the war in Ukraine and Russia taking children, and to Russia, taking Ukrainian children to Russia and adopting them or putting them into foster care in Russian families. That is quite clear to me that is wrong. And I'm wondering if folks are thinking, sitting here thinking, well, I didn't do that. I didn't remove anyone to boarding schools. I didn't do that. So I'm just thinking of the best interest of the child here. Do you feel it's that kind of ignorance? That it's not me that did that to your people. It was generations ago. So let's move on. It's all of it. It is all of that and beyond that. And it's this systemic racism that happens to not just Native Americans, many other people. Um, I think we as humans, you know, there's so much um, what society's standards are. Yeah. And I think sometimes we think, oh, we have the, even though the intentions might be good, yeah. um, you know, some of like the placement program that happened here with the LDS church or... Um, you know, relocating our, like my, my mother was relocated to Intermountain uh, Boarding School. And she, it was great for, for a little bit, but it was, the intentions were good. But I think if you don't truly consult with tribes mm -hmm. ahead of time and really get and hear them and understand them, mm -hmm. um, then, then you're really, and then, but, but these people know. They, they, they know. So they're definitely, it's, they're choosing, 
but we're going to work with them. Yeah. We're going to work with them today and then tomorrow, uh, you know, at the press conference where we're going to continue to convey the information. So another situation I think people can see clearly is the separation of children at the border when their parents bring them across the border seeking asylum. And we know what happened. The American government didn't even keep proper paperwork to be able to reconnect those families. And so I think there's clear history of why this is bad. <laughs> but tomorrow at the press conference, who, who will be there and where and when will this be happening? The press conference will be tomorrow on the 31st at 12 p.m. at the Utah State Capitol. And how many folks are going to be there from different tribes? Or, or I'm guessing that's will be out the of case. the eight tribes. I understand there, um, uh, the chairwoman uh, and and other chairmen from tribes. But I know our president, uh, Mr. Bunigren, and first lady will be in mm -hmm. attendance, um, <clears throat> and also the speaker of the Navajo Nation Council, okay. uh, Speaker uh, Crystalline Curley. And also two of the delegates, I understand, will be there as well, elected delegates for the Navajo Nation. So we do have a really good um, presence from the Navajo Nation. So you're going to meet on the south steps of the Capitol noon. This is in support of HB 40, which is a state version of the Indian Child Welfare Act, that uh, when a Native child is placed in the foster care system, they are returned to next of kin or tribal relatives to preserve their cultural heritage. And this bill, folks, has bipartisan support, including the lieutenant governor and the attorney general. And I just wanted to close with a story you told me before we started recording our conversation. And that was what happens to a child when they are taken out of their, their tribal connections and uh, how some lose the language, which has always been something tribes have been holding on to. But you were telling me that for Navajos in particular, your language is more than just a way to communicate. It connects you to your ancestors. Definitely. It connects us. You know, we have a lot of our, our holy people, our holy deities in our language. Um, like, are the warrior twins. Are the first woman, white shell woman. Um, there are many others in our language. We have songs. It is so beautiful. And every time I sit in these ceremonies, and, and I'm still learning my language every day also. I'm adding to my vocabulary in Denebizad. And, you know, when we think about the future on this planet and the world and leadership, I think we all aspire and we want our future, that are all our children to have a fighting chance, to be loved, to be safe. We don't want this world to get any more dangerous than it's already getting, right? And our indigenous language is a huge protective factor. How could you resist something that we know is going to help our healing process? Iqua is a, is a part of our healing process. Not It is another assault on our sovereignty. It is a direct assault on us. We are, our children will be, we know because we've seen it over and over and over. Um, we're not predicting, we already know what's happened, what has happened to our um, indigenous children. Some might thrive and, and they're okay, but the ones, um, we want to bring them home. You know, for myself, I want to share like a quick story, even for myself, you know, growing up in a turbulent home, I, you know, my, it's a, it's an awesome thing. It's a wonderful thing that my grandmother, Sarah Brown Eyes, the strong Navajo elderly woman who fought for us. I, there was an opportunity, there was a chance that I was going to be adopted because I was in the system. And you know what? I'm happy to this day that I was not adopted by non-natives because people were saying non-natives. And now I know my language. I serve in a capacity as an elected legislature and now speaking for ICWA. So I know from direct experience also. So it's, it's really um, it, it, our language, our culture, our way of being. And, and just also, you know, I've seen other indigenous nations around the world. They attribute their social ills that have been escalating have decreased because of their language. And that's in New Zealand, the Māori people. 
we have visited them and we love how they have, their people have healed so much. Yeah. And, and, and that's, we're going to continue to work on that. And, 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 you know, back at home, so anyone that's listening, come to the Navajo Nation. You know, we, we have beautiful events. We have, um, we, we are doing so much with our language and we're going to reteach our children. And, and it was a big piece in, in, in preserving, not preserving, but revitalizing. Yeah, also, yeah, preserving, saving our language and our way of life as well. And there's a difference between a prayer in English and a prayer in Diné because the ancestors can hear you better. That is so true. I had an elder tell me, um, <clears throat> when we say, you know, the English translation is the warrior twins. And I was told that one of the elders um, said, the holy people are designed to, to understand our language only. They, that's their name. Like for me, I'm not going to answer to another person's name. My name is Nathaniel, but I have a Navajo name. I have my clan. I'm very connected. I'm Topaha, meaning on water's edge. That's my mother's clan. And that's her mother's clan and her mother's clan and her mother's clan to the very beginning of time. Each clan has very specific stories. And to know that, you know, it's it's really helped me through the most wonderful moments of my life, but it has especially helped me in the hard times. Those moments when anxiety is so high, depression. I mean, I'm I'm my you know uh, counselor. I I they diagnosed me that I have severe depression and anxiety, which equals PTSD. And because of our language, our way of life, our ceremonies, I I am able to get up every morning and continue to fight every day. And that's why ICWA is so important, to keep children connected with their culture. Indian Child Welfare Act is so important. Um, I've heard so many stories from, from every... Um, multiple different types of people and tribes and even individuals. You know, our former speaker has shared his story, how he always gets emotional on the council floor and the last council and before that he is a product of ICWA. ICWA protected him and brought him home. And, you know, we have a leader who who um, benefited. He said, I love Iqwa. I'm glad Iqwa exists. It has helped me. And he's home. You know, he has gotten his, received his education and, and he's helping our people. So it, Iqwa does work and is so important um, for, for our children, for, you know, going from healing into thriving mode. And Iqwa will be as a piece of that. My thanks to Nate Brown for coming in today. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the press conference that again is tomorrow at noon on the steps of the Capitol, the Utah Indian Child Welfare Act press conference. And one last item before we go to break. Dave John of Ours, Our Unsheltered Relatives, said that he and other grassroots activists are setting up a warming tent on what's called the island at 350 South-ish on 500 West for folks who are unsheltered in these bitterly cold nights that we're having this week. More details in rallies and resources. Sundance 2023 when we come back and to get us from here to there, Ray Zaragoza and American Dream on KRCL. I've been thinking about the news Daddy leaves it on all day through I've been thinking about the wars And to be honest, I can't take it anymore I hear you every day The awful words you say But hate can't be The face of the American dream I've been thinking about my life how one day I want to be a mother and a wife I've been scared of that thought too In a world of struggle, what are we gonna do? I hear you every day Saying it's gonna 
KRCL. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Subaru Share the Love event, a partnership with local charities in delivering hope this holiday season. Learn more and info on how to get involved at markmillersubaru.com. Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now!, followed by Red, White, and Blues with Brian Kelm at 8, Night Train with Michelle Tanner at 10.30, and John Florence starting a brand new day at 6 a.m., but sitting in for him, Phil, in the morning. So if you missed any of the last two weeks of a show, you can listen on demand, folks, at krcl.org. And now, if we can get a drum roll, from the peanut gallery. All right, that probably heard out there in Radioland. But it's time for the Sundance Film Festival Redux with the Radioactive team. We've got KRCL's Gavin Dahl. Hey. Eric P. Nelson. Hello. Rishon Leak. Okay, that's like a Zoom Twitter. We couldn't even hear you. Awesome. <laughs> and Autumn Thatcher, our red carpet correspondent, which is kind of where I want to start, Autumn. And uh, playing off the conversation I just had with Nate Brown about ICWA, I really wanted to get into the different houses up at Sundance. And you in particular went to the Sunrise House. I did, yes. The Sunrise House was the uh, put together by Daniel Day Kim, who collaborated with the Asian American Foundation and Gold House Media to bring the first ever Asian American and Pacific Islander house to Sundance Film Festival. Here's, let's play that clip. It's 20th anniversary this year at this year's Sundance Festival. I think about those filmmakers and think that they did not have the community that, excuse me, that we have today. And I also think about all those who are aspiring to join this community. And the fact that we can serve as role models and this effort can serve as a model for them to look to and work toward. So today, we should be proud. We should take our place and be honored to consider ourselves among the community of Sundance. And each and every one of you here today should be able to proudly say, I was in the room where it happened. Thank you very much. And that's Daniel Day Kim, the actor. Where did I first see him? Was it Lost? I think it was Lost, for me anyway. I think so. For me it was as well, yeah. And you did quite a bit of red carpet and had conversations about representation. I did, yeah. Um, And, you know, at the Sunrise House opening uh, day, Daniel Day Kim invited press and, and filmmakers alike to mix and mingle. And I got to meet some really interesting filmmakers um, Alex Boranova, who has a film called Enter the Anime on Netflix, and John Burr, who is currently working on um, a thriller, casting for the fr- thriller about three Black young men who become trapped in a white gated community after witnessing a murder. So keep an eye out for that film. Um, but that was a, you know, that kind of kicked off the weekend of really great experiences and conversations um, attending an indie directors and creator spotlight um, hosted by Erica Nicole Malone. And uh, and that was to, the goal of that was to ignite conversations about diversity during Sundance. Got to check out some really, really amazing performances. Um, yeah, it was just a really great opening weekend to be up there and, and be in person again. Sundance doing a lot to try and shine a light on marginalized filmmakers. I mean, that's the entire basis of the film festival. But originally, of course, when you think indie film and when it started, largely white filmmakers. And now they've got the Latinx house, as you said, the AAPI and uh, indigenous houses. In fact, I had a chance to speak with Faviana Rodriguez, an activist, artist and culture change strategist who is helping Hollywood give voice to the narratives of BIPOC characters and their creators. Here's what she had to say on the subject. Hello, everyone. My name is Faviana Rodriguez, and I am an artist and the president of the Center for Cultural Power. And my organization works with artists of all disciplines uh, to support social change. We believe that cultural change precedes political change and that in order to have an equitable world where everyone can thrive in harmony with nature, we need the stories, the culture to lead us in that way. I have been participating at Sundance um, for four years. This is my second time in Utah. And you know, like many cultural organizations, Sundance is recognizing that it has to move towards more diversity 
equity and inclusion. Um, and so this year, two Oakland filmmakers, uh, Kamau Bell and Ryan Kugler, received recognition for their work. Um, and, you know, in their speeches, these are both artists that, that I know well and that have contributed a lot uh, to the work that we believe advances social justice. You know, Kamau Bell last year um, released his documentary, We Have to Talk About Cosby, which, you know, when we think about actually the documentaries around survivors coming out of Sundance, before that it was the documentary about Russell Simmons. Um, it's, uh, it's Sundance is a great space um, uh, where these documentaries are born and, and um, there's still a long way to go for institutions. There's a long way to go for institutions like Sundance who um, need to transform in a holistic way to really meet uh, the needs uh, of what, you know, what kind of storytelling and narratives um, we need that is truly, truly inclusive. And that's Faviana Rodriguez. I had a longer interview that I'll post in the show notes. But while we're on red carpet, I got to get to Will Ferrell. Tell us more about this movie with Will Ferrell, Autumn. Well, Will Ferrell made my Sundance. And so, you know, that was amazing to be able to ask him one question on the red carpet. He was up there to help present or promote Theater Camp, which was um, a film, a mockumentary film about... Uh, the uh, musical theater camp that happens over the summer in upstate New York. It was really funny. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And being able to talk to him on the red carpet and asking him about why uh, he he was drawn to taking on that project was also really great. Your, your production company took this on. What drew you to the project? And what are you most excited about with today's premiere? You know, I'm, I, I'm most excited about the fact that this cast and all of the producers, they finally get to see it in front of a real, you know, full audience, which is so exciting. And uh, But we were just drawn to the kind of the camaraderie that Molly and Ben and Noah and Nick all have together uh, and, and just listen to them pitch this idea and the way they would kind of over talk and answer each other's you know finish each other's sentences and everything it just made us think oh this is going to be this is going to be fun this is something we should get involved i definitely recommend watching theater camps lighthearted fun i stayed up late on a work night for it so worth it <laughs> on a work night and thank you again for being our returning red carpet correspondent your moby interview though didn't happen i'm so sorry Oh, Moby ghosted me. <laughs> <laughs> I was so ready to talk to Moby. I watched the documentary. I was up there. I was on the shuttle en route to my interview that I got an email saying he wasn't available and tried to reschedule and it never happened. But despite being ghosted by Moby, I will say that uh, the movie that premiered at Slamdance, Slam Punk Rock Vegan, was actually really interesting. It dove into the history of punk rock music and how vegetarianism and veganism became a major component to this subculture. It featured interviews with lots of heavy hitters in the punk rock music scene. Um, some of my particular favorites were Rob Zombie and Dave Navarro. So even though I did not get to talk to Moby like I wanted to, I will say that the film is worth checking out. And you can because it's now streaming gratis on YouTube, I understand. We'll put a link mm -hmm. in the show notes. Any other red carpet moments you want to shout out before we move to docs? Yeah, I will say that I got to uh, talk to Brooke Shields and uh, and director Lana Wilson, who also um, directed Taylor Swift's Miss Americana, which I know we talked about on the show three years ago. Um, and so it was really cool to be able to talk to them about that film, Pretty Baby, Brooke Shields, the first documentary that um, Brooke Shields gave the green light for. And um, and that one is going to be, I believe, on Hulu. I don't know if they've announced the the premiere date on Hulu yet, but people will be able to check it out. It's a two-part docuseries, and it was really great to be able to ask her a question, a question on the red carpet as well. What do you hope sharing your story will accomplish? There we go. Okay, there we go. Um, I really hope that... that 
people, women in particular, see this film and find similarities in their own lives? Because I think people will come away with this, realizing that all of our stories are really quite similar. They just look differently. They look different from the outside. And I think that I hope people come away with the belief that they can persevere and that longevity really has to do with showing up and really working hard. They were a little stricter this year about questions, but I was grateful to even be able to get one in. So, Autumn Thatcher, you can check out her work, carecl.org, Sundance Film Festival tab. All of the posts that were made by our team are up there now, and we'll be adding audio uh, as well so you can get all these interviews. But I'm ready to talk docs. And Gavin, I know that was uh, your list was pretty much docs, docs, docs. How are documentaries this year from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, everything I saw was was worth uh, the time, and I think just about everything uh, deserves a wider audience. Uh, for me, the uh, Food and Country documentary was really worth checking out, and I saw that at a packed house on Sunday afternoon at the Broadway. Director Laura Gabbert has worked on food and food journalism and worked with producer and subject Ruth Reichel, who's a food writer. Um, big with the LA Times, et cetera. And uh, just really interesting looking at the kind of small farm scene and uh, the consolidation of the meatpacking industry and the impact on restaurants during COVID. I think uh, really interesting film that you don't really have to be an expert in these topics to get a lot out of. And uh, just just made me think about my own experiences, you know, uh, with all my favorite restaurants and p- people in in small small food businesses and you know, so many of them didn't make it during COVID. And so sort of a, a really interesting lens into that world. Um, another one that that was really exciting for, I think, for several of us, and probably I would say the best film of Sundance for me was Little Richard, I Am Everything. I got to see the public screening uh, right here in Salt Lake um, at the community college at the Grand. And it was, it was just a, a triumphant experience to be in that room with so many cool people in Salt Lake City and to feel like um, my whole perspective on the history of rock and roll changed due to this movie. Did you like the kind of right? stardust effect, you guys? I think all of us, but I maybe Eric that. saw it, the little because yeah, he's the quasar. That was yeah. part of the title of a book he wrote, Quasar of Rock and Roll. And there was kind of this stardust feeling and visualization, Rashawn. They they really did. I, I, I really appreciate that. But I, I think I wanted to touch on something that Gavin said, and it really uh, it was hard not to not to walk away from that documentary, a changed person with your perspectives of the mu- of the music industry. And and just I'm just going to call it because y'all know everybody who listens know I'm, I'm outspoken. It's garbage. It's garbage what goes on in the in the music industry. Like and and the reason I say that is because we all know Little Richard is just has a bountiful amount of hits. But then I think of Pat Boone singing Tutti Frutti and I'm <laughs> appalled. And I and I know as as a music lover, as as a, as a person who just gets into any documentary about music I can find and somebody who is also just happens to be black. Hey, I know exactly why they have Pat Boone singing that song. And it's not to spread awareness, but it's to make money and take money away from the artist and say, can we make more money with not without Rich, Little Richard, but with other people singing his music? And yeah, it's but, just... Go ahead, Adam. But I was just going to say, and Pat Boone didn't do it nearly the justice. The no, no. Like, so awful. I was, I mean, yeah, so... Okay. I, 100% agree with everything you're saying. And the film shows that. In fact, the screening I went to, the filmmaker, Lisa Cortez, was there. And the piece that didn't make it into the movie, she talked about paying Little Richard and what happened when the company that owned the rights to his music was sold to Michael Jackson. Here's that clip. A guy named John Branca, who appears once in the film, he's a music attorney, and he's actually the executor of Michael Jackson's estate. Additionally... He was married by Little Richard. And one of the stories we don't get to go into, and we tried to keep it in, is about when Richard goes to protest at ATV Music um, to get that famous little money, um, Michael Jackson buys ATV. And Michael Jackson hears of Richard's plight, and he actually gets, uh, gave Richard money. So it's one of those stories that was really beautiful, but we couldn't kind of have all of that in. So bits and pieces came into him, and certainly there was a nice little windfall for Michael. 
And that is documentary filmmaker Lisa Cortez from the Little Richard film, Gavin. I mean, so there were the artists who clearly exploited the work of Little Richard and, and you know, were um, part of that sort of cop out in, in the music industry. And we're also talking about a period where segregation extended to the airwaves mm-hmm. and other, other parts of culture. But then you've got... F- famous, the all-time biggest names in rock and roll, saying on camera in this film that without Little Richard, they wouldn't be who they were. Paul McCartney, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, David Bowie, they all admit this is this is the centerpiece of their style. I mean, the, the Rolling Stones were a blues cover band until they went on dates right. in the UK. And that's... he took them on his tour. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sleeping. Like, yeah. What do you say, Gavin? He had Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney, Mick Jagger sleeping on the floor at one point. And I'm glad you said that, Gavin, because it was. It was really like the one thing that I really loved was and I don't want to give out any spoilers because I think everyone should see this movie. But I really loved this when when little Richard finally did get his just dessert and David Bowie, Dave, I'm getting chills talking about it. The David Bowie was like, if there's no little Richard, there's no me. I mean, that like to walk away and to recognize like this person exists because of that person and the things that. Little Richard had to go through. I mean, I, I learned so much about Little Richard in this in this documentary. I just I mean, I love I mean, I loved him before, but now yeah. Yeah. oh my gosh, I can't I can't think of a playlist now that doesn't have Little Richard on it. Yeah. Well I really loved how the filmmaker treated his whole story, his family mm-hmm. story, his queerness, how he felt his blackness and his queerness kept him from getting his due through his life till it was like, you know, an end of life award. And then how he goes off. They had great footage because he died before they started putting this film together. But they had so much footage. And one of the things that really struck me, I'm, I want to know if it did the, all of you as well, is how um, he was invited on shows either to, you know, be Little Richard, this comic foil for hosts, or as kind of a... a a vintage or retro throwback conversation, but he took every opportunity to be who he was in all of those. Also so interesting to think of in the early part of his crossover into white audiences, the fact that he was effeminate, that he wore makeup, that he was perceived as less threatening to white women also, that is such an interesting dynamic that the film explores, and, and I just we should leave it there because people need to see this for themselves. But such a fascinating uh, mess of LGBT and faith, and uh, you know the, um, the his own kind of denial of himself, and then and then still being someone who influenced others in such a dramatic way, but then had to hide from yeah. himself in yeah. a way. Rashawn, he was a preacher's mm-hmm. kid. Yeah, he's a PK. He's a PK. And and so I I really I really felt for him, especially someone, you know, I grew up in a church. My parents still have a church. And knowing what the pressures are, somebody is, I would argue that he's probably expected to be a preacher. I know I was, and I and I'm nobody in comparison to little Richard. So imagine having that that voice, having that that notoriety. I mean, that's that's somebody everybody would be like, oh, you should be doing the Lord's work, all these people that you could bring to Christ. So I can't imagine every day having to look in the mirror and deal with that, because I'm sure that was an everyday occurrence that he had to battle, whether he was, whether it was when he was just full on, just living the the Christ life, or when he was in his Hollywood life, every day had to be torturous. So Eric, I'm guessing this is music meets music. Yep, that is definitely uh, next season. That's going to be one of the docs that we're going to have to pull in. All right. You know what we have to do right now? We have to play Tutti Frutti. Little Richard oh, yes, on Tutti Fruity, Little Richard. You're going to want to see that doc, and the film is? Little Richard, I am everything. 
whoo, and you get the full story, the unabridged, yeah. unedited story of what Tutti Frutti, where that song yep. came from. So you're in for a treat. So, Gav, we were in docs, and there's another doc about music. Did you see the one about uh, the Indigo Girls? Yeah, it's Only Life After All. Really great look into their lives. And, and I, what I liked the most about that was the analysis of how media has covered them or not covered them. Yeah. Uh, I think, Same with Little Richard, right? Yeah. yeah. Rashawn, did you see this one, too? Yeah, I saw this one. I saw I I happen to be up in this is the only one I saw before COVID hit the league house. And so I happen to be there uh up at Sundance and and the Indigo Girls walked right by me. They we made I made eye contact with Amy Man. And you I locked eyes. Like, I locked eyes. May she I? knew she knew I was about that little Indigo girl's life. <laughs> but yeah, this one was a this one was also I mean, these two documentaries really made me have a different perspective of the music industry and the you know we we hear and we get to see a little glimpse of the greatness behind it but these documentaries let you know that it is not all sunshine rainbows and pixie dust if you will yeah gav run the rest of your docs for us well yeah the other one that um i I wanted to bring up with everybody here and i got to review on radioactive is going to mars the nikki giovanni project directed by michelle stevenson and joe brewster this was an incredible accomplishment i mean nikki giovanni a fascinating subject no matter what you're doing but to to juxtapose 50 years of footage from her to to you know to um, collapse time like they did was really impressive and um, I, I'm really hoping this is a film that's going to be seen by a wider audience. It was certainly uh, um, respected by the jury. I believe the Sundance jury named it for best documentary. And you also reviewed another one for Radioactive on Friday with Jason Momoa narrating. Yeah, Deep Rising, uh, really well put together, complicated story, but I just think it's going to struggle to find a wider audience. Um, it's not one we've heard getting picked up. You put Jason Momoa in anything, it's going to automatically bring people in, and he did a fine job on the you know, the reading of the narration, but um, it's just a really complicated story, and there's not a definitive um, you know, ideological perspective that's being portrayed. It's not a Michael Moore you know, uh, yeah. propaganda film. And so so I think that's just going to make it kind of hard for people to figure out where they, you know, where they connect to it. And as you said, it might need Aquaman's superpowers. <laughs> I like the turn of phrase. Yeah, I, th- yeah, I think um, Aquaman's superpower of uh, of mind control for yeah. the, the underwater species could, could be yeah. its best chance for an audience. Now, Rashawn and Gavin, you both saw different documentaries that related to the missing and murdered indigenous women issue. I had an opportunity to see Bad Press. And uh, so Bad Press is really interesting because it, it, you know, like the title says, you know, it it really focused on just trying to make sure things on the reservation were told in a in a specific lens, you know, and it and it it really what it what it made me realize is that I think me personally feels like you're they're doing themselves a disservice, you know, and, and I was talking we were talking about it off air and the reason I say that is because you're not being as transparent as possible. So you're not helping, you're not helping the people who live on the reservation, and then you're not giving insight to us who aren't on the reservation, but are always interested in life on the reservation. And how can we do more? How can we help? And so when you know, for me, my walk, my takeaway was if if you pretend like everything is always okay, then it makes me not want to like. Why am I helping? Then I can I'll just go and sign up for another cause. And you know, and for me, it's like. All these indigenous women, and I don't know the actual number, but I know there's a lot of indigenous teenage women that are missing and maybe run away or whatever the case. But if no one's ever talking about it and if no one's ever able to share their story, how do you get more of the masses involved? How do you get more people that are part of the search wherever that may take us? Yeah. And bad press focusing on the Muscogee Nation and censoring its own free press. And it looks like it got a special jury award as well, Freedom of Expression. Gavin, what was the film you saw? Yeah, I really wanted to see Bad Press. I'm so glad you did and that we're covering this. Um, I watched the three-episode miniseries Murder in Bighorn uh, about the disappearance of women and girls from the Crow and Northern Cheyenne nations uh, in Montana's Bighorn County and surrounding areas. And, you know, I, I, I would say if I had my choice to sit down and watch two hours of 
footage about this. I would have preferred to watch one singular film. Um, the idea of, of sort of binging these three episodes meant there's a lot of repetition and stuff like that. So I don't think the format was great. The people they had introducing the film uh, at the Broadway were oblivious to what was going on. He's like, this film's two and a half hours long. Bye. And it yeah. was like, that's not yeah. a film, dude. It's a series. But anyway, um, I really think that um, th- these stories being told uh, and, and trying to give accurate portrayal of all sides of the issue uh, is really difficult and important. And so what Murder and Bighorn does well is it allows you to see more than one side. So, for example, this debate around um, are these um, these crimes being committed by a white boogeyman? Are they being are the is it native on native violence? Um, of course, many of these scenarios are different. Um, and there's there's an assertion by a white member of law enforcement that folks in the native community won't take responsibility for how they're treating each other. But then there's also, of course, a total lack of trust. Um, you could say very rightfully um, between uh, tribal members and government and and white led agencies. At, at the same time, there's there's a lot of unsolved and unexplained mysteries that remain that way. Murder and Bighorn is not going to give you satisfaction. This is not a spoiler. It's not going to give you satisfaction that uh, we know what we got to the bottom of everything. But I do think that um, you know the the high profile nature of Murder and Bighorn will be on Showtime um, is really going to help bring more attention to this issue and hopefully um, you know the the path to justice is still possible. All right. Another video, um, excuse me, Kim's video that I wanted to talk about with y'all. So you saw it, Eric. <laughs> I did see Kim's okay. video. Yep. So tell us about Kim's video, Eric. It was it was a fun Sundance documentary. Like, And that's kind of a rarity around there. A lot of times you get bogged down in kind of some really heavy documentaries. Kim's video was just a fun adventure documentary. It was, it was about a video collection. Kim's video in New York um, just 55,000 VHS tapes, very sketchy ways they would come across these videotapes, but they became a, a mainstay for folks that love movies. And the internet came along, put them out of business because people stream things, and uh, they needed to find a place for this video collection to go. It goes overseas, it kind of disappears, um, and then the director says, I'm going to figure out where this goes. <laughs> Ten years later. <laughs> yeah. What happened to the 55,000 VHS tapes? Yeah, oh my it, gosh. It's like if the, the video collection at the tower disappeared and got and shipped that overseas. That would be horrible. Yeah. <laughs> out of our hands. Yep. And, and then someone makes a documentary and goes on this adventure and um, – the mafia is involved. The politics <laughs> become yeah. involved. You've what? got to see this movie. It, it so, is, yeah. Do you Dave, recommend it, Gavin? Yeah, David Redman and Ashley Sabin are the directors, and uh, they chase the videos to Italy. I, I really don't want to spoil it because you've got to yeah. you've got to see it for yourself. But um, but Kim's video uh, brings together this this idea of following the money in a, a, a Italian politics, which you did not know was coming when you <laughs> sit down to watch this movie, and what happened to these videos, and uh, without. Again, without spoiling, there is an attempt to save the collection. And so uh, anyone who goes and looks this up can find out what really happened. But I really recommend that you watch this movie because it's really fun. And yeah. then at the end of the movie, again, no spoilers, it leads viewers who enjoyed the movie into a very clear next set of steps of what Eric P. Nelson and I yeah. need to do now that we've yeah. seen the film. And we'll have to report back on that later to avoid spoilers. Well, we are doing our 2023 Sundance Film Festival Redux. I'm Laura Jones, Gavin Dahl, Eric P. Nelson, Rashawn Leak, Autumn Thatcher on the roundup. Just a, a couple more minutes to go and a couple films I want to squeeze in. So the, the the beauty of Sundance is the variety, but one of the painful things for me is the whiplash. And so we've talked about some fun things. We've talked about some music-focused work. But Rashawn, you and I both saw 20 Days in Mariupol, Gavin, Autumn, Eric. Okay. So oh. Rashawn, this film is just devastating. In the screening I saw, the director was there, the AP team that was in Mariupol as Russian military started to lay siege to it. And then the story of how they got the video out because otherwise there was nothing coming out mm-hmm. of this siege and in the in the news conversation it was oh fake news fake news fake news yeah and even one video got out from this AP team Mstislav Chernov as a, if I'm saying that correctly the filmmaker and his team they had to send it out in 10 second spurts and then you would see in real time and they had this in the in the documentary Russian uh, spokespeople saying that's fake news. Those are crisis actors. It was hard. I remember this is going to be whiplash for y'all too. But I remember when I saw Pulp Fiction, I was 
physically nauseous watching that mm-hmm. film with the level of violence. This is real life, even more so affected me. How did even, it affect you? It, I mean, like one, as somebody who has covered the Ukraine for a couple of our Tuesdays, two, as a parent, three, as just somebody who's fairly empathetic to other people's uh, other people's trials and tribulations, this was this was hard to watch. And, and not to say it was hard to watch because it wasn't good. This was an amazing documentary, but it was hard to watch because you are, I mean, we are visit, we're sitting in our in the comforts of Utah. We're in our homes and we know we are watching something that is going on right now. We are watching something that is arguably in real time. And I don't know if we we normally get to see that. You know, you don't normally get to be in Mariupol in a war. Like and so seeing and and I I want to say that they they made sure that you saw certain things like I just want I don't want to go into in in depth but they made sure like that camera was rolling and so I don't I can't imagine how much footage they actually have like left over. But he said thirty to forty hours that he has. It, it's like I don't use the term gut wrenching lightly. It, it was. You will walk away a changed person when you watch this documentary just because of what's going on. And it won the prize, the audience prize for World Cinema Documentary at Sundance yeah. this year. Just devastating. You also watched one about the Om uh, um, Shinrikyo. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. The death cult in Japan from years ago. Yeah, that one was that one was good. I, you know, that one was cr- like it, it's crazy because you're watching it and you just you know. I'm, I've always been fascinated with cults. Cults just fascinate me just because, you know, you, you, you see people and they're, and arguably they're just normal people living their lives that just get caught up in the spin of, you know, this movement or that movement. And next thing you know, they're giving away their bank accounts, selling their, you know, selling their worldly goods and just living on some compound somewhere. And, and you see like for this one specifically, you're watching somebody. You're like, oh, this, you know, this guy's a yogi. You know what? Yogis can't be bad, right? You know, like not gonna lie to me. I've, yeah, they're they're not gonna, you know, they're just trying to make sure my body's healthy and things like that. And then, you know, lo and behold, this this person thinks they have a bigger following than they actually do. Run for office, don't get it, and all hell breaks loose after that. And it's just it it just shows you the monster that is pride. You know, like when people's egos get bruised, they are capable of so many awful things. Um, the cult at the end of the world. And, you know, you're a preacher's kid. I was raised in an organized religion. We don't need to get into that. But I'm guessing that's part of the draw for you in, in this kind of a movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, I I, I love it. I, I, I grew, grew up growing up in the church. There's cer- certain aspects of the church life that I miss. And I understand how you can be pulled in, not saying that the church I grew up with was a cult by any stretch of the imagination, but I understand community. I understand a, a feeling of belonging. I understand, you know, like growing up in the church, everybody, everybody who's been to a black church knows that what that choir, when that choir gets up there, you better hold on, you know, I mean, I, you know, I had some moves, I got up there and shout, you know, and I come from a church where we're running around like, you know, yeah. you could be the preacher is preaching and acting like no one is doing laps around the church right now. Like, that's the church I grew up in. Like, are we going to pretend like Miss Johnson is not on her third lap sweating bullets right now? OK, that's what we're doing. You know, and so it's it's really it's really interesting to see when someone takes that lore and just goes even further and yeah. really just tricks their believers into into a world that is not what they originally signed up for. Well, to wrap our conversation, I think I've saved the best for last. Eric and I had an interesting overlap. We've noticed this the last couple, last couple of years, you and me, Eric, and that's that uh, the Midnight series yep. really grabbed us. Sometimes it's too slashery for me, but this I year... I saw some of those. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to go first because then I want you to finish, all yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Onyx, The Fortuitous, and The Talisman of Souls. How would you describe that film? I didn't even see it. You didn't even see it? We were talking about this the entire festival, that we're both going to see it. It was on my list, and 
you know, family That's what pops happens up. at Sundance. Yep, and uh, that happens. But you had a great I review. went and saw it at the Broadway, and the filmmaker was there. Onyx the Fortuitous. Google it, because you're going to find these uh, short viral videos the guy's been making for 10 years. Finally turned it into a full-length feature. And to me, it was like a live-action cartoon superhero thing. <laughs> and I, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, because I, just, I loved it. To me, it's in the vein of... Um, What's that vampire one that I love? Shaun of the Dead. Oh, yeah. With the humor oh, yeah. and okay. the quasi-horror going zombies. on. Yeah, there we zombies. go. And there's there's puppets oh. in this one. Can't go wrong uh, with puppets. Exactly. There's homages to, you know, uh, what's what's the guy that I like so much from the... Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell. It's got that <laughs> sense to it. Evil Dead. There's yeah. homages to Evil Dead and other uh, of uh, horror humor movies of that ilk. So yeah. if that's your jam... Comedies. Definitely check it out. All right. Yeah. That was that was what I was looking for. And you're just saying that's how Sundance goes. Yeah. One of my favorite memories of this Sundance was just hearing someone overhearing someone on the shuttle. Someone was stressing about getting to a movie and missing a movie, and she was like, "Just, just roll with it. It's Sundance. Uh If you miss this one, you go to that one." And she just kind of laid it out. And that's what Sundance is: is you you set your schedule. And you break it, and you just see what you see. Um, and this time, midnight movies. I saw five out of the, or six out of the eight. I saw all the horror ones, and some of them were fine, some of them were okay. But the top of the list was Talk to Me, um, which will be out later this summer in theaters. And it was from a couple of uh, YouTube guys from Australia. Very popular. They're called Raka Raka, and. My first thought was, ah, YouTube. Let's see what's going on. But but I listened to them talking about, it, and YouTube is where they figure out how to make a movie. And they made a fantastic movie from uh, start to finish. It was scary. It was good. The acting was fantastic. Um, it was based off their their neighbor had a video of himself. He uh, was having a bad reaction to some drugs. And the video was all of his friends sitting around laughing at him while he was having this bad reaction. And they said it was just terrifying. And that was the movie. It was a group of friends um, using demonic possession as a drug, and it, wow. it was it that sounds was too much. Really, it was it <laughs> was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, like, how do I get? How do I befriend them? Rashawn wants to watch. <laughs> he wants to be a cast yeah. member. It was it was really good. So uh, yeah, that one got picked up by A two four. A two four does the weird yeah. movies, and uh, I'm excited for people to see that this summer. I think the only Sundance movie I've ever walked out on was from Australian filmmakers Wolf Creek, and it was slasher, slasher, slasher. Oh. But based on a true story, was this based on a true story? It was based off that video. Okay. So right. I hope this wasn't real. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Am I um, I would say the follow-up to people walking out on movies. Um, I went and saw Infinity Pool with Cody D. And was this his Mandy oh, of twenty? Oh, that was the one with Alexander Skarsgård, right? Yep. And I wanted to know Skarsgård. And uh, so we sat down and we started watching. And he was worried, like, is this going to be Mandy Part Two? Am I going to get out of here? <laughs> um, but it was, it was weird. I've seen weirder at Sundance. Slasher? Um, a little bit. Um, we saw the NC-17 version. Because it was having a hard time getting uh, yep. cut for general distribution. Did so it, it succeed? just got released last week as, as an R version. Um, and it was it was Brandon Cronenberg, so David Cronenberg's son. Okay. But he's doing it on his own. Um, it, was a, it was a good movie. It was kind of the... Uh, the wealthy 1% uh-huh. um, going wild on an island. I don't want to spoil Uh-oh. anything because I went in not knowing anything. Okay. And uh, if you like weird, if you can d- handle some horror, um, have at it. It it's also stars Mia Goth, who is kind of the new Scream Queen. Um, big fan. Infinity Pool, give it a shot. Okay. Yeah. Um, the rest were kind of ho-hum. Um, some fun stuff. Run Rabbit Run was good. That'll be out on Netflix later this year. Um, Birth, Rebirth uh, got picked up by Shudder. There was a theater evacuation during a screaming of a, oh, I did hear that. A, a, a screaming of that. A screaming of that. Um, no one got to the bottom of that one. Uh, that's just a Sundance mystery. Um, and yeah, the midnight section was pretty fun this year. I feel like that's the indie part of the indie festival. 
at yeah. Sundance mm-hmm. is the Midnight series. And to close, uh, for those of us that watched a few of the episodes of the Willie Nelson docuseries, any thoughts, any reactions? Gavin, I know you saw yeah, it. Yeah, I, I saw the first two episodes and then they stole it out from under us. We didn't get to watch the rest. So now I'm going to have to go subscribe to whatever service it comes out on because I, I want to see what happened. Uh, I, I feel like it was kind of dingy and um, dirty and sort of like, it wasn't all glossy, and I thought that was perfect. It was gritty. It's Willie gritty. You it's just gritty. Yes. Willie Nelson. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's lots of great music in it, and him singing and playing acoustically with his kids. So the, the episodes that I saw. All right. Anybody want seconds? Because I'm ready to wrap this. Gavin. I just want to um, name drop Sing Lee, the director of The Accidental Getaway Driver. I saw that. Did you enjoy it? I mean, I didn't love the movie, but I think the direction was incredible. And so uh, the jury named Sing Lee Best Director, uh, definitely a director to watch. And uh, then just in the shorts, I only saw two of, out of six of the short series. And then there's other types of shorts as well. I didn't get to watch the animated ones, but one to name drop The Vacation and Mirror Party, which are my two favorite shorts at Sundance this year. Otherwise, just really fun to get to be on the team with all of you and um, kind of jealous of Autumn, honestly, to get uh-huh. all that red carpet time. But <laughs> hey, one question a piece for celebrities. That's that's still not easy to get done. Yeah, Rashawn. <laughs> all right, I got two movies that I think are are definitely worth watching if you get a chance to check them out. Uh, Judy Bloom Forever, it's going to blow your mind. Uh, it just gives you... Gives you a whole new glimpse of of America's favorite young adult actor or young adult author, I should say. And Deepest Breath. It's a movie about free diving. And it's got me like relooking how I even snorkel. And I'll just leave it at that. Autumn. I'm going to say I'm going to put a plug in for Slam Dance's The Mad Writer. It's a documentary about a rising hip hop producer, Laurent Larange. And I got to interview the director for that one. And it was, it was a great documentary kind of detailing the journey of um, being di- diagnosed with a career um, threatening medical condition while also, you know, addressing mental health issues and challenges and things like that. It was really Really great doc. LaRange is the producer of the the duo Marlowe with Solemn Brigham as the MC. Uh, I'll be playing some uh, Marlowe on a lot of New Music Monday shows because I'm a big fan. So that's so cool. I want to see that film, Autumn. Well, excellent, everyone. Thank you for being part of the team. Until next year, happy Sundance, everybody. Yay. Yay. We did it, y'all. We did it. <laughs> we survived. <laughs>